Hello, and welcome to Elevate. I'm Randy Taylor. Thank you so much for joining us here once again today. Elevate is a show that brings you in-depth interviews with top experts in the world of human potential and behavior. My hope is that you take what you learn in these interviews and possibly do something with it. Now, today's guest brings more skill and experience than we will likely get through in this interview. And he's worked with the likes of Stephen Covey and Tony Robbins and many more speaking and training on human behavior and interpersonal communications for more than 40 years. He's also a 16 year cancer survivor and works to help others going through the same. I've known him for many years. Uh, and if someone asked, I would say that his focus is on two things, really. One, what's possible and two, what really matters. A great pleasure to welcome Michael Knowlton to the show today. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you so much, Randy. What a pleasure and a privilege. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great to, uh, great to have you here. I, I, I always have to ask, uh, 16 years is a long time to be battling uh, cancer, but how are you feeling right now? You know, I appreciate the question. I'm feeling uh, pretty darn optimistic, all things considered. It's uh, an up and down journey, as you might well imagine. Yeah. Uh, yesterday was the 16 year anniversary of, you know, meeting with a doctor and hearing the news. And so it's not the milestone that you're typically uh, excited about. And yet when you start counting 16 years uh, and still living, uh, it's a pretty important day. You know, both uh, both Joey and I, my wife and I uh, have known you guys for quite some time. And, you know, Joey and I talk about you all the time and say that. Hey, honestly, I think one of the best forms of medicine that has brought you through all of this, uh, and we'll get into this in more detail uh, a little bit later, but it, it's your mindset, right? You are such a positive person that says, come on, we can fight this, we can do this. You're a realist, but you're also, uh, you know, fighting mentally, true? Uh, no, it is true. And I think that that's a big part of the equation. And yet we also know so many people that have got a terrific mindset that in spite of that, it's just insufficient that the disease takes them. So yeah. for me, it is an anchor. It's something that I've always really stayed with. When my diagnosis came, I thought to myself, you know, what's the reason I need to change my outlook on life? In fact, I would say it even took me stronger toward you know, a focus on the things that really matter. Yeah. So uh, on, on on this show, uh, I, I've always thought it's important to get to know the messenger before the message. So uh, the story of you, uh, let's, let's start there. So how did life begin? And, and what were some of the, you know, things that happened in your life to, you know, to bring you to the stage of uh, who you are today? Well, I mean, I guess like everybody, you know, you think back, I think oftentimes of my life kind of in a sequential manner, you know, the first 10 years, I played a lot of sports as a kid. And so I can kind of go through my teen years in organizing it by how things went, you know, whether it was ice hockey or, you know, baseball or whatever those things were. I grew up in the Belle Province de Quebec, and at the age of, I don't know, grade two, essentially, my parents decided I should have French, so they put me into the French school. And I guess one of the defining things about that was that you show up, you know, with two words, like the principal says to me in my interview, do you speak French? And my dad had coached me, said, if he asks you that, just say un peu, a little. <laughs> and so you go from there to, you know, four years later being completely bilingual in a language. And it didn't always go easy because I was the English kid in a French environment and I'd get in 
tons of trouble because there'd be lots of fights and you get bullied and picked on because you're the outsider and that happens uh, to kids. But generally speaking, I had a terrific upbringing. I played a ton of sports, uh, which was a really important part of kind of coming into my own, the ups and downs of all of that. And, uh, you know, really was a fortunate kid. My dad had a business. I had a chance to work in it. I started to learn a lot about that um, and got through a college education. So it was a pretty darn, um, you know, lucky. I was a pretty lucky, fortunate boy. So in the early going, it was leave, leave it to Beaver, right? It, it uh, you know, great, uh, great home, great opportunities, sports, you know, friends getting picked on by the French kids. But other than that, um, it was uh, it was pretty good, right? It really was. I mean, you know, tons of outdoor, lots of nature and just a, a really loving uh, environment, frankly. So, you know, to, to look at this and say, you know, one of the, one of the fascinating things that uh, that I find with our with our children, and you have uh, four, right? Grown Correct. kids. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, when when the doctor hands you the baby, when, when you know, if you're lucky enough to be in the room and they hand you the baby, I mean, it's an incredible a part of life. Uh, I think the more important uh, and exciting part is when you start to get to find out who they are. Yeah. And then, you know, you and Lynn going through the trepidations of, uh, okay, so they're going to school, they're going to university, and they're doing these things. What are they going to do? Yeah. Right? And, and then they end up finding their, their path in life. It, it, do you think that's something that all parents kind of go through and you just have to trust that they'll find it? I think it is. I mean, there's so many stages, you know, so many parents that you've heard and we've heard over the years. It's like such a difficult time. We always really approached every phase, whether it was the teenage phase, the younger phase, as just another stage of development. And I think that it's harder for some kids. I think they get, you know, they get reinforced in the wrong ways in the environments that they're in. I mean, look at your upbringing yourself. We know, you know, the history and what kinds of challenges that you had coming up. But I think in our case, yeah, we always really did our very best to give them the most, you know, opportunity that we could present to them. We were tough in the tough times, you know, the telephones and the girlfriends and all the stuff that causes anxiety that, frankly, if I had to do it over again, I'd probably be <laughs> a lot more chill, um, you know, than I might have been along the way as a, as a dad. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going through that a second time. And uh, no, uh, it, it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you it's, go. It's still the same thing. But I mean, you know, in, in looking at kind of that juxtaposition of, you know, so you grow up this way, you're into sports, um, you know, that's going fine. Your education's going fine. Um, did you have any concept at, you know, at that age going, you know, through high school and through university, kind of what you... Did you ever see a path to what you're, you know, what you ended up, you know, ultimately doing? You know, I, I would say not really. I wasn't one of those kids that at the young age kind of decided that their career or their, you know, their um, future was kind of uh, laid out for them. I landed on my feet in a sales job. It was kind of funny because I was working for my dad after many, many summers and tons of, of opportunity to work in the office and kind of advance in his business. When I graduated university, he gave me a full-time job. What kind I of business was it? He was in the packaging business. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, it was big money back then. I mean, I'm an old kid. It was $14,800 was my annual wage. Wow. 
And out of the blue, a gentleman that was a friend of dad's who had actually taken me to the University of Western because he, he wanted me to play hockey there. And I didn't end up going. And here I am now, fast forward, within weeks after graduating, he calls me up and says, hey, we're looking for a sales professional in the insurance industry. We've recruited 16 candidates from across Canada. One child, one kid just called and said he isn't coming home. Are you interested? Right. And so it began. And I, I was so fortunate. I had tremendous you know, learning right out of the gate at the age of 21. And I pursued a sales career for 40 years. Interesting, you know, with with that background in sales, I have some, you know, some experience uh, in sales, and I, I know you did a tremendous amount of training uh, with organizations in sales, and 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 I do as well. And l let me ask you this question because you grew up in that environment, uh, you know, of the old, you know, kind of the old style company office, and you know that guy that brought you in, I would pretty much guarantee that he took you under his wing and he trained you and stuck with you and mentored you yes yes i mean one of the things that i see you know in in business now is that's uh you know that's not uh that's not happening and you know the challenge for i think so many people uh, especially in sales because right i mean that's a that's a tough psychological slog you you're only as good as your last sale and it's tough to keep the mindset up and without having that if you were thrust into sales you know to today like you were as a as a youngster without that kind of support and mentoring and accountability and all of those things how do you think it would have turned out well, you know, I mean, I think the reality is that we're very adaptable uh, as individuals. And so, you know, you work with what you have. Back in the day when I started in sales, there's no internet, there's no telephone. I mean, you walked around door to door. I was calling business on businesses. And so that was the way you, you did it. You did it with the yellow pages. And it was a very hands-on, but it taught a lot about at the, at the end of the day, it was people buying from people and buying from people they liked. So I think on the other hand, sales is hard because there is a camaraderie and there is a sense of a culture that gets developed, uh, you know, when you're all seeing one another on a regular basis. The Zoom world of business today is entirely different. And yet at the same time, the technology provides a ton of opportunity for learning and development if organizations do well to really think it through and provide that kind of learning chance for somebody. So I think it, you know, it is hard for sure. And what astounds me is how companies can build an entire large organization completely virtual. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it really is astounding. I was looking. There was an article yesterday that I was reading about the the top growth companies over the past five years, who have grown um, in excess of five hundred percent in five years. You know, Tesla being one of them. Uh, you know, clean energy companies, technology companies, five hundred percent in five years. Yeah, and kind of speaking to what you're saying, without technology, it probably wouldn't happen, right? Well, I mean, I was speaking with a friend recently who was in the healthcare industry in the United States, and they're like, you know, a highly competitive market. There are over 300 new companies daily that are coming into the space. Wow. And so the competition, I mean, it takes so much to be able to really 
achieve the kinds of results of the organizations that you're mentioning and so many others just struggle. And to me, it's often a leadership issue. Looking back, looking back at your career in sales, and obviously you got into, you know, behavior and communication skills and the rest of it, but um, what do you see looking back uh, at your sales career? And, it, it, you know, there's a lot of people that listen to the show who are in sales. So, you know, speaking to them specifically, uh, what were some of the things that you learned in sales that, uh, that were really important? Uh, and you've kind of adapted some of those things that you learned to life. Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is that sales skills are life skills. I mean, that really is the bottom line. And one of the things that I learned very early was um, how different each of us is. And so, for example, you could use, you know, mental models have been developed in leadership to really help us org organize our thinking and have a way to sort of assess and analyze where we are. And so, for example, in the very early days of my career, I was fortunate to be exposed to a methodology called social styles. It basically puts us into a category of assertiveness and responsiveness, and it helps us understand that an analytical person is much more slower paced and into facts and details, whereas the expressive is big picture and fast and, you know, sort of uh, a little bit more assertive, let's say. And when you start to get into conflict, you often realize that it's people who are in the opposite ends of the scales. And so it began to help me orient, you know, my awareness and paying attention to different things relative to the person across the table. And so one of the big ideas that came to me early was that it's not really where you land on the spectrum. It's about versatility which is about your ability to adapt your behavior in a way that makes the other person feel comfortable. And, you know, that is such uh, an unlocker because so often you were just not really paying attention. We're pitching, we're talking, you know, telling is not selling. And so it's a long list of things, but that was one of the early lessons. So your career in sales was some time ago. And it, it, I mean, it's interesting because it really sounds like you really honed in early in your sales career. I mean, certainly in your, in your you know, follow-up career to that you did, uh, but in sales, in, you know, in the relationship side, in the interpersonal side, in the connecting with the person side, it wasn't, you know, just fab features, advantages and benefits, right? It was, do you like me, <laughs> right? Uh, and well, do we have a relationship? Likeability is a huge issue. And so, you know, this whole idea, part of my really the privilege that I had is I became a sales trainer uh, based on a brilliant man's work, a uh, piece of work called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. We called it the demise of dysfunctional selling. And it really was getting away from this whole idea of telling. It's, it's incredible. I mean, I carried it around the world in 20 countries and the behavior patterns are the same. We hear something that sounds like some of our solutions and we can't resist starting to talk about our things. Right. And so the big idea is that, you know, in communication skills, when we think about it, you can be observant, you can be noticing what's going on both within yourself, but others that you're with. You can be active, which I am now. I'm trying to kind of harness a result by sharing a story. Or you can be receptive, which is really about the other person's point of view, not just the words, but how do they feel about it? 
And when you really think about the top experts in business development and sales, their receptive mode skill is their muscle is strong. And they're able to really, you know, put themselves in a situation, create enough trust uh, and enough space that people will actually tell them what's really going on. And so it's such a natural thing, but it goes way past business. It's about our personal relationships with our friends and with our families and how we show up for conversations. Do you think that it's, you know, it, it, it's also a bit of a, a, a struggle with human ego? Uh, you know, and what, I mean, one of the questions that, uh, that I often ask people is, you know, what's the most desired and interesting topic of conversation on the face of the earth for any of us? What is it? It's me, right? I want to talk about me. And so, uh, you know, in that inner, in that interpersonal, you know, business situation, or even in, you know, relationship development, do you find that there's, you know, so it's like, okay, so I'm talking to you now and I'm going to talk about your farm a little bit later. I want to, you know, some more information about sure. Lynn and we're doing that. And as I'm talking, I think, you know, I feel my ego saying, well, I want to talk about my life and, and I want to say, you know, can I tell you about the work we're doing in the backyard and all these things? And all of a sudden I took the light off of you and I put it back on me. Is that well, like really a, a difficult ego thing for all of us to control, to just leave the light on the person? I think that there's certainly an ego element to that. I think it's also just an awareness issue. I mean, we'd often say, or I'd often say that, you know, you know, ego is in the room when you're trying to demonstrate your brilliance You know, you're trying to seek approval. And there's nothing, unfortunately, that shuts down conversation faster than ego. Because it's like, it's not about me, it's about you. And so the more we want for ourselves, then the more we need to help other people get what they want. And one of the challenges that folks have is, is that their brains are so patterned. It's like you and I are talking and you say, hey, I'm going to Disney next week. And I was there three months ago and I cannot resist. Oh, Randy, let me tell you, let me tell you. I went to the movie. I saw Top Gun. Oh, wow. And we just, so it is absolutely a muscle. It takes huge awareness. And when I would work with, with, with folks in the workshops, I would have to skill and drill and it's uncomfortable. The thing about discomfort when we're learning new things is when that feeling comes upon us, we know we're right on the edge of learning and we need to push through it. And so receptive mode changed my whole life and the way that I work in business with family. And it took a long time to go from intellectual to getting it in the heart. It's hard. That You know what, that's one thing that uh, I really want to get your thoughts on this is that um, learning the information, right? So in all the training you did, and it's, you know, it's irrelevant of whatever it is. It, it can be the book someone reads. They watch a video. They attend a seminar. They, you know, get all these great ideas. So speak about, you know, that transition from, you know, from concept and, you know, and, and inspiration to application and what it really takes in order to transfer that knowledge into something that's tangible. Well, I think the challenge is, is that most of us know what to do. We just don't do it. 
And so that really is the bottom line at the end of the day is what is the mental posture and what is the decisions that you're going to make about something? And so, you know, we would leave a classroom, for example, 30 people for three days, skilling and drilling with all kinds of technique, if you will. And some folks would adopt it and it would change and other people just would let it go. And that is how human nature is. I mean, our brains are conditioned, we're patterns, we're, we're, we work based on behaviors of patterns. And if it's worked for us in the past, then we'll keep doing it. And so changing behavior is very, very difficult. How, well, how did that affect you? You know, because, you know, there's two people in this equation, there's the people yeah. you're training, uh, and then there's you. And, you know, that, that feeling of, God, I just poured this into them, everything, you know, and then it, you know, it reminds me, I know you're a big fan of Jim Rohn, too. And I mean, Jim's yeah. story that, you know, in the early going that he was so excited and he learned so much that he would stand at the front of the room and say, you know what, I'm going to change the lives of every person in this room if it kills me. Yeah. He said, yeah. in the early going, I almost died. <laughs> so, but I mean, from from your aspect, how did you approach that, that, you know, why is it that those seven people got it and those people just Did let it go? Well, I guess, uh, first of all, I never took it personally. I can assure you that we had a ton of fun. I mean, and this is a part of learning is that you need to create an environment where people feel safe. It all comes down to safety, in my view. If people don't feel safe, then they're not going to really, you know, even be willing to try things on. Yeah. I think one of the real learnings after, you know, time and time and time again over years is one is the realization that we were providing too much information. We were basically feeding people with a fire hose. And so it was very unrealistic. I mean, I had spent years mastering the ideas and the methodology and the language. And so that was, you know, number one. And so we basically decided after doing this for a long time, we came up with a mantra that said, training doesn't work. <laughs> what works is repetition and reinforcement. And so what we did is we cut way back on the amount of content in the workshops. And then we picked up with the sales leaders and the individuals over six months on a weekly call to put it into practice and application. Right. And that's really where it sticks is when you can try something on and it works for you, then you want to do it again. And we were able to demonstrate how preparation could just literally change the outcome and the success that folks were achieving. One of the one of the things that I, I want to ask you about this, that, you know, the, the negative impact that training can have on people. Uh, and here's why that, you know, I attended the seminar. I read the book. I, I went to the course. I, I did this. Uh, but there wasn't the repetition. Right. There wasn't the accountability. There wasn't the follow up. Uh, and so it falls off, you know, and the boss comes and says, you know, what are you doing with that training? Uh, you ask yourself, you know, I made all these notes at that seminar. How much have you done? Well, not much. And it, you know it I think really starts to pull down the person's confidence because now they have this self-deprecation that, come on, I learned this stuff. What's wrong with me? <laughs> well, you know, this is a hard thing. And I guess, you know, I had a conversation with somebody recently and my 
you know, we sort of asked the same question. It's like marketing has provided all of the information. We keep giving these training folks and people aren't using it. And they're so frustrated. And really, I, my comment was, it's a sales leadership issue. What is the sales leader doing with these folks yeah. to really practice and get the reps? And so we started to provide other ways to try these things on that would really help people onboard them. And so just, you know, throwing it out there, I think it's insufficient. I think it takes a lot more than that. And, and again, going back to, you know, our discussion about the, the sales model. You know, you had a regional office and you had a manager and there was accountability and you had to show your call reports. And, you know, there was there was that forced repetition. And I think that predominantly in the you know, in the workforce today, it's, you know, go do it. And if you don't succeed, we'll turn them and burn them and bring somebody else in. Right. Well, and the thing is that when you really look at what it takes to succeed, there's got to be a lot of moving parts that are coming together and working well together. And the same issue about people's willingness to really be in listening mode and understand an issue and to dissect it before they're just so quick to try to solve it. It really prevents a lot of what's possible to accomplish. And so there is a lot that can get in the way. And it is hard. I mean, there's nothing easy. As, as, as my friend used to say, if it was easy, everybody would do it. <laughs> exactly. I'd put it in a pamphlet and buy an island. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I've always thought that, you know, people like you who, you know, have had an extraordinary life, who have accomplished amazing things, that um, it's it, it really comes down to mindset and getting to know yourself. And I know that you kind of checked out and left the world and went traveling for six months. Uh, you know, and really spend some time to find out who is Michael Knowlton. Talk about that. Well, I was, you know, 28 years old. I'd been in a career for seven years. I was running a business that was, you know, three and a half million dollars, which might not sound like a lot of money. But when you're 28 in 1988, it is a lot of money. A lot of money. Yeah. And we had had the privilege. I'd bought a condo that uh, had, you know, gone up in value. It was a crazy time. It was interest rates were at 16 and 17 percent. And I came home one weekend. A friend of my mom's was there who traveled extensively around the world and said, you know, you really should travel. And by the time I drove back to Windsor, which is where I was working at the time, I made the decision that that's what I was going to do. So I gave up. I asked for a leave of absence. I didn't get it. Wait, you, my... you just you, you passed over something there that everyone thinks about and never does. So <laughs> were, was it just that easy that you went, yep, I'm, I'm going to travel? Or did you have that knot in your stomach like, oh, my God, what am I doing? No, it was really that easy. But there's a whole backstory always is. I had a I had been promised to move a, a, a relocation. I never got it. I got a new boss. I didn't like him. So there was a lot of uh, reasons that it made sense to just kind of throw, you know, throw it, throw my hands up and, and walk. And um, back in the day, I mean, there's no internet. So we bought a around the world, I bought a around the world ticket. Uh, and off I went. Three months in Europe, um, a month through Asia, Singapore, By yourself? Bangkok, Hong Kong. No, actually with my ex-wife, uh, okay. as it turns out. And um, it was a six-month journey, and it was incredible. I mean, wow. it, I came home for that. It's one of the things I always say is be careful what you ask for, because I came home from that thinking, 
I just want to do international business. I want to be able to travel and meet people the way that I did. And lo and behold, within, you know, some period of time, that's what presented. And that was, uh, that was it. You, you spent, I can't remember how many days uh, at, uh, you know, at a retreat and in silent meditation and, <laughs> Talk about that and 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 what kind of again these are these are really interesting signposts along the yeah. way that uh, you know pe- many people talk about they think about they read about they daydream about but they never actually pull the trigger so um, what I'm hoping is that you know this conversation will also spur people to set aside some of the fear that says oh you can't take those crazy chances true. You know, it was a big risk. I mean, it's interesting just to all, you know, come back to your question. But what was fascinating is when I got back from the trip and in the year or two that followed, I took all the money that I had and I, you know, I spent it to travel the world. And so all of my friends that were at the same level as I would, they all now had houses and they had automobiles and they were moving into their child stages. And I had none of that. And for a while, it felt like, oh, man, did I make the right choice? And of course, in the end, it was, you know, absolutely. But here we were going back to the travel and there was a a meditation retreat with a, um, a style of meditation called Vipassana. And Vipassana meditation is a very ancient, sort of very old, um, you know, Indian uh, tradition. My brother had studied in India for many years under the leader by the name of Goenka. So we were traveling through Europe. We were in Amsterdam. We had way too much fun. And the next stop was just outside of Paris. And they'd opened this new center. And there was a 10-day retreat that was happening. And I'd always wanted to do it. I've got all the time in the world on my hands. And so in we go. And so when you go, you basically have to commit to 10 days. There's no like, you know, seven, you get in there, you don't like it and you leave. The men are separated from the women. And basically over 10 days, you uh, are taught the, the Vipassana method. You wake up at four in the morning, you sit from 4.30 till 6.30, you have a brief breakfast, you sit all morning, you have lunch, you get a rest, you sit in the afternoon, and in the evening you have a discourse. So it's 10 to 12 hours a day, and it's noble silence. So you're not speaking with anybody, you're not reading anything, there's no phones even in those days, but it still goes on all around the world. And it basically, goes at this idea of purifying our mind and our body and bringing the two things together. By the time you're done and the 10 days are over and you're now reassembling and you're starting to look at people and talk to them, it's like, it's crazy. And you have been so sensitive. You've observed your body so deeply for 10 days, the sensations of everything that's going on. And it essentially taught you that it's about living in the moment. It's right here and right now in this breath. And it's not about the worry and the fear, which I refer to as false evidence appearing real. It's just this idea of being present. And here we left, Randy, we had five months remaining. We didn't have a delay. We didn't have a hassle. We didn't have a problem. It just went smooth yeah. because our orientation completely altered. 
it, it really sounds like that that uh, you know is something that I mean you, it's not something I'm sure you sat around and you talked about every day like oh my god we had this epiphany and the angels were singing and the skies opened but um, really you know I think developing that skill to just be silent and be with yourself and be in the moment I read a study I talk about this all the time that a uh, study that I read said the average person is here focused on this moment in time, no more than 10 to 15% of the day. And, you know, we can't process dual thoughts. And when we're not here, we're there lost in thought, worried about the economy and visa and the kids and everything else. And, and we're missing everything. True. I think we do miss a lot. I think there's a ton of distraction that we have. And I think it's particularly hard these days with all of the social media that's out there and all the perfect lives that people have. Uh, and it really is a big distraction. And it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of, you know, desire, frankly, to be able to invest in yourself. Do you still uh, consciously work at you know, shut it out, shut it out, shut it out. Just, the, you know, you're talking about like all the noise. Yeah. Um, do you it? Every day, every single day. I, yeah. I tend to do it um, mostly at night at bedtime. And I tend to do it a lot in the morning before I get out of bed. Yeah. And it's really a, it's a practice based on gratitude. And um, that gives me a lot of energy. And it's really what's got me through a lot of the very difficult times, frankly. So you, you know, go on this, I'm jealous, <laughs> this, you know, this amazing six month journey and, uh, you know, it's a life is a collection of memories and boy, I'm sure you have just a bushel full from that. Uh, you come back and somewhere talk about the transition from you're the sales guy to now you're the behavioral communication expert, you know, doing work with Tony Robbins and, and Stephen Covey and, and getting into that world, how did it happen? How did you go from, because I think, you know, so many people will look at this and go, oh, well, I could never be Michael Knowlton because it's, you know, but it happens in real time and it happens, you know, from, from opportunity. So how did you go from that world to this? Well, it was, uh, it was a pretty natural thing. It's like, I think a lot of our opportunities come from people we know. And so when I landed back on the ground uh, after the six months, I needed to be employed again. And as it turned out, a gentleman that I'd worked for for many years knew of a company that was in the training and development business. And it was in the early 90s. There was a lot going on and it was an important thing. Companies were investing heavily in training and development. And so this particular company had an incredible breadth of offering. They had leadership. They had sales. They had project management, performance management, selection, assessment. And so I really got an incredible indoctrination over about seven years bringing these offerings to uh, you know, major enterprises in Canada. And part of the, the, the real joy was that when I would sell these programs, I would attend them. And so I would then become the student through the process. And so this literally evolved. And I did it for many years. I did it very successfully with across many industries in Canada. And I really got a very strong breadth in you know, human resources what they call today the human, um, you know, the human resource officer, never a title that really existed before. Mackenzie was born, my daughter, I took a year off. 
it was another thing. I felt comfortable taking the risk. I wanted to be there. I took a year off. And when I decided to get back in, I landed on my feet with a company called Franklin Covey doing some incredible work. And that then led me to uh, the opportunity to teach um, you know, this, this content at a very deep level and taking my skill set even you know, inter, in an interpersonal communications and in a communications skill set much, much deeper. Did it feel, you know, kind of like serendipity a little bit that you, you know, kind of, you know, got into a world that, and it sounds like it was just so rewarding, right? To be able to, you know, to, to not only teach this, but to also, you know, learn it. Jim Rohn again used to say, uh, you know, I'm the greatest benefactor from my training. You get to hear it once, I get to hear it 500 times, right? So yeah. was that kind of that feeling? It was, and I mean, it didn't come easy. The best way to the best way to learn is to teach, as they say. And so I was provided an opportunity to move to the front of the room. I'd be selling these programs, Randy, and then you know we would bring a facilitator in, and they'd just be okay. Yeah, and it really didn't pull the business through. <clears throat> so I had an opportunity. I was asked, "Would I start to be a teacher?" And so when I when I got on board, it's like content was so thick and rich. It was so hard to really embrace it and grab it. And so my first opportunity would be to teach a small segment, 30 minutes. And I did that a couple of times. And so I land them with this company, Chubb Insurance in New Jersey, and the master facilitator is there. And my turn comes to deliver a module called Intent Counts More Than Technique. It's a, it's a really important construct. Yeah. So I get up, I'm 30 people, and I, I thought it went really well. And I could watch the, out of the corner of my eye, the human resources officer as one of the participants at the table just was uncomfortable with me being there. And break happened, and I could see her run over to the experienced facilitator, and they're having a little convo. And I walk out into the hallway, and Dave says, I need to talk to you. And I walk over there and I said, uh, what's up? And he said, I'm really sorry, but um, you need to go pack up your bags and take off. This is not going to work out. Oh, no. And just at that moment, one of the sales leaders had seen us in our little powwow and wandered in and walked into the with the two of us and said, hey, by chance, are you... Uh, talking about feedback from the HR person that Michael didn't do a good job and kind of, you know, nodded yes. And he said, that's BS. You, Michael, you did an amazing job. It's just that she's so in love with Dave. Nobody else would ever be able to do this. Wow. And I got to save my freaking job. And I went on to teaching <laughs> what a retrieve, right? in the world. So you never wow. know, man. <laughs> You never know. That that is uh, that's that that is serendipity, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right time, well, right it's place and yeah, somebody paying attention, you know, and so, somebody passed themselves. So many people, you know. I mean, the, this whole stacking order uh, of everyone getting to stand on the shoulders of giants, the people that you trained and they became trainers, and yeah. you know, the people that inspired you. So, who are you know some of the the people in this business? that, uh, you know, like Jim Rohn, who, um, I don't know, just just opened up, you know, potential doors for you in your brain? Well, I would say that the, the, the Covey Leadership Center, the work that Stephen Covey did with the seven habits, I mean, that, 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 
that set of thinking, which was essentially that, you know, we we kind of transition in what he called the maturity continuum from being very dependent. In other words, we we take how we feel about ourselves from cues from other people instead of really being who we are and feeling it inside of ourselves to a higher level of maturity called independence. You know, hey, I got it, man. So I can stand on my own. I'm with it to interdependence where we play nice in the sandbox and we really can work together as a team. And you can't be interdependent if you're not independent and you can't be independent if you're not dependent. And so he provided a real roadmap of what he called the seven habits that allowed you to move from, you know, one level of maturity to the next and to the next. And so that was an unlocker for me. You know, just the idea, for example, habit one is be proactive, like between something happening and, and you doing, you know, making a choice. That's that's what our brain does. There's a choice there. And so you're going to take it the good way or the bad way. And so the building blocks of that methodology were a very influential part of adopting those in my own mind, you know, that really helped me advance. Yeah. The you, Tony Robbins. Sorry, sorry go ahead. No, the Tony Robbins experience was phenomenal. I um, came to know Tony through a mutual friend. Um, I had an opportunity to participate in two of his, you know, mega workshops, Unleash the Power Within, he calls them. Um, you know, you end up at the end of day one walking on fire. I mean, it's just it doesn't even make sense intellectually. And you did it, right? And I did it. I did it actually twice. Um, and it's a 15 foot lane of, you know, hot coals, 1500 to 2000 degrees. He's got 8000 people in a room, Randy. It's like he has con he's worked with us hour after hour to imagine what it's going to be like to stand there, to get across it, to be able to celebrate the other side. And it's just a metaphor. It's the essence is if I can do this, I can do anything. Yeah. And one of the things that was a game changer for me in that session in the four days was what he talks about as key beliefs, the things we keep telling ourselves, it's the negative self-talk. And so everybody identifies them and I figured out, you know, what mine were. And then he takes you through this exercise. Okay, let's just hold on to that. So mine was, my one of mine, I had many, uh, my money, my finances are never going to be in shape. Like every right. month was a struggle on and on. And I'd held this. It was such anxiety when it came to paying the bills. And I'd held this for a long time. And he said to the whole group, he said, I want you to imagine that nothing changes and it's three years from now. Like, tell me what that would sound like. And it's like, oh, and it's like, OK, it's 10 years and you're still holding on to it. What's that feel like? Oh, and the sound in this room was like it was guttural. And then he says, let's reframe it now. Let's let's talk about what the opposite of that would be and what we can do to reframe it. Honest to goodness, I let it go in that moment, and it was a game changer for me, and it has never been an issue again, and lo and behold, my finances have worked out just fine. So what, you know, what is it that's going on? And it's, you know, as I think Jim Rohn had said, it's like you, we need to be the you know, we need to be the, the the watchers of our mind and what's going on and what we're what we're doing to what we're thinking about. 
And so those those are just a couple quick examples of 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 really influential um, thought and methodologies that were so so helpful for me and one millions of, the, of others by the way one of the things that you you know that you talked about uh, earlier was uh, during a time i think it was in the in the 80s when you know this you know personal development and training world and you know buying cd programs and cassette programs and going to conferences and going sure. to meetings it just it, it it became like almost religion and and it really i mean you talk to a lot of people that say I went to that conference and he changed my life. He turned yeah. me around. Tony Robbins, right? He made me see something in myself. And today it, it, it feels like it's kind of lost its shine uh, a, a little bit. And, you know, I don't think people have the same kind of belief system that we used to have. And I think, again, we're just over inundated with messages and technology and everything is, you know, you can watch it on the Internet and you can read a blog and you can do this. And but again, the work doesn't happen. So do you, do you think it would, it would suit people, you know, to kind of go back to read the books, right? Go to the conferences, take the training, do, you know, do the hard work. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that our belief systems necessarily have changed that much. I mean, I think our human brain is, you know, millions of years old. And so you kind of, it, it evolves for sure. You know, what used to be the phrase is you are what you read. I mean, that was, you know, before all the Internet. And so books yeah. were such a foundational uh, element. But I think we all learn differently. I mean, I do master classes now. And so there is a lot of, of additional opportunity that's available to us. The question is, are we taking advantage of it? Right. Or do we just get distracted from the notification that popped up on our LinkedIn or our Facebook or our Instagram? Squirrel. <laughs> this is it, Randy. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's been fascinating because when, when we're together, I was with a dear friend recently who's suffering, you know, who's gone through major, major cancer, major surgery, and they came and spent some time with us. And we really tried to understand where are you at? You know, what's going on? How are you feeling? And it was really about that receptive mode because it just made sense. You know, let's hear them. Let's understand them. Let's feel them. Let's see where they are. And one of the things that they said was, this never happens for us. Like nobody really asks us. We don't, it's just so crazy. It's like we just move past things so quickly. And it does come back to our belief systems and our willingness to really be curious and be interested and to be genuinely wonder, you know, about what's there. And that's where I think people find their passion because that's what drives them to go learn and and, you, and, and really evolve and develop. I mean, there's not really any other way that I see to, to get there. So uh, look, looking back over, you know, all of this work that you did, all of the, you know, hundreds of thousands of people traveling the world, going to all these countries, doing all this training. Uh, and then 16 years ago, uh, you go to the doctor and you get some news. Um, where were you in life at that time? What was going on and what was the, the obvious, you know, it's the elephant in the room. What was the, what was the shift and how did you and Lynn kind of approach this? Well, I, 
you know, it was December the 6th of 06, and it takes a long time. I mean, I have a very rare disease. And I think for a lot of people, it's very difficult to get a good, you know, the right diagnosis. And sometimes it takes months and sometimes it takes years. And so I found myself at the cancer clinic and I needed a bone marrow biopsy to really identify it. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, when do we schedule that? And the doctor says, well, what side would you like it to hurt on? Um, and so it was done. It was a bone marrow biopsy. It confirmed a diagnosis. And so you go into shock. I mean, here I am. I'm at age 46. I've been diagnosed with a very rare blood disease. You know, one in a million at my age, one in 20 million people, only 1,500 cases diagnosed annually. Breast cancer, 400, 500,000 cases diagnosed annually. And so it sets you down this path of, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to have the long life that my father had, my grandfather had, and that I always imagined I was gonna have. And so the fear really starts to set in. And so we had very young kids at the time. And so we decided, I mean, our youngest was probably five or six. And we decided, hey, we're just going to come clean with the kids and tell them what's going on. You know, dad has cancer. So that was the beginning of the journey. The blessing in disguise, I suppose, is that Lynn's father at the time also had cancer, very, very similar to the one that I had. And so he'd been living this life with him, going to all his appointments. He was such an optimistic person and he would show up with a smile on his face and he would make the nurses laugh. And it really gave us a footprint for how we wanted to live our life with cancer. And we made some harsh decisions. I mean, harsh depends how you define it. I was working for a U.S. firm. Uh, Murray, my father-in-law, couldn't get certain care, certain cancer choices in Canada that were available in the U.S. And so I was diagnosed in December and March. We moved our family to Florida and we stayed there for just under six months of the year so I could qualify for U.S. health care. And we went back and forth, back and forth to Florida for three years, just trying to keep the options open. And so over time, we just kind of started to cope with it. It became a bit of a natural thing for us. And I was fortunate because I was in what they call wait and watch. Some people call it wait and worry. Um, and it was kind of quiet. So I had it, it's incurable, but I could live with it and live more or less a normal life. And we had the privilege of moving to Paris, France for a few years. I was working there. And by the time I came home, I got off the plane, the family came home, I went to Princess Margaret and I started into my chemo. And that was really when the full on treatment process started for me. I know that. Um, so, I mean, a, a few things. One, the courage to just, you know, be so open with your family and your children, uh, I, I think was, you know, really courageous, very hard to do, the right thing to do, uh, you know, and, and I also think that because I, you know, I, I know enough about your backstory that you married way out of your league. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, yeah. and, and and your wife, Lynn, is just um, you guys are, you know, just lifetime sweethearts. And um, she has just been a been a rock for you. Um, people that are listening, talking about going through something like this and the importance of family. 
Well, you get your anchors. I mean, I often think to myself, you know, our our breadth and our touch is really not all that broad. You know, it's our family first and foremost, and then it's a few friends that go beyond that. And then certainly in our professional careers, we try to influence as many people as possible. And so family is everything. And you're right. Lynn is just a rock and just a very, very courageous and strong woman herself. And so that that's important, but that doesn't mean that it isn't incredibly difficult. I mean, I think the caregiver role is often harder than the patient role because they're not only fraught with having to take care of you, but they're also fraught with this whole idea that you're going to be gone before them. Yeah. And Lynn to, is an incredibly talented writer. She's got a, you know, an online presence with our daughter, Tristan. And when her dad is her early days was going through the cancer diagnosis, she started to write about cancer. And people said, oh, you don't want to do that. Like this is a hush hush topic. It's not OK. I'm talking like 2008, 2009, even yeah. when blogs weren't invented. And so she started to write about what it was feeling. Then she lost her dad. And Randy, it took her down for a couple of years. I mean, it was that hard. And so she started to talk about her experience, about what it was like. And people responded like thousands of comments, like, you know, trying to really just acknowledge how hard it is and how common it is. And so that kind of led us not only to an openness and an idea to be able to be straight with our kids and our family, but to try to put out into the world something that would help others just try to cope and be okay with what it's like when you've got somebody in your life that's got cancer. I think one of the, you know, one of the most remarkable things that, that you know, you and Lynn have done, uh, you know, making, you know, making lemonade um, is just an incredible sense of honesty. Like I, I know that, and we'll talk about it a, a little bit more. Your your organization that you uh, started and the messages that you send out: "We can survive." Using yes. the word "cancer," we can survive. Um, and you know, I've watched all of your videos and you know, writings and and everything else. And it just, to me, it was so helpful because it was really honest. You know, in talking about right now, this sucks more than you could imagine and i think that in itself has helped so many people rather than going oh no this is all good and fine and we're good right well thank you first of all for even watching that stuff you know it, it really it, it was and i you know when you talk about people that influence i just love the work of brene brown and this whole idea of being vulnerable and being honest and being courageous you know, I thought a lot because of the many trainings that I did early on about what is important to me. And so those were the kinds of values that jumped out. It would be on my list. Courage, honesty, compassion, other person focus. And so in order to do those videos, it was this idea of, well, what would you say to people? And so then you put a camera and I had a terrific uh, videographer who was really just you know, doing our own little docu-series with me. And it was scary because, you know, you got to put yourself out there in the world and you got to say it like it is. And so that authenticity to me is where I think folks somehow try to put on an air that's maybe not really who they are. 
And I think the congruency is when you can be honest with not only yourself, but with others and just tell it like it is and be authentic. It's, it's an unlocker because it brings alignment and, and relaxation and joy and just a better feeling. I, you know, I, I think at its core, I think that's it. I mean, I, I'm listening to you and going, yes. I mean, that's um, you know, that's so important to. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes the message so powerful, yeah. uh, but it also, I think, speaks to another lesson that we can all learn, which is, listen. You know, we all have two faces to the world, right? Yeah. There's the face that I want the world to hope I am, and then there's the face that I really am, which is I'm honest with myself. And trying to bring those together, true, like what you have done in this, you know, in helping other people with cancer. I do. And I think it takes a lot of work. You know, I, I kind of had a funny experience a while back where I was, Lynn and I were, we renovated this crazy, beautiful Airstream and we traveled around. We went on a road trip for six months and traveled all over America into Mexico. And we came back and we were just doing a quick weekend. And we're up on uh, nearby here to where we live and we're on a reservation land uh, with some native, uh, you know, native uh, locals. And a lady appeared. We had this beautiful lookout with a um, a spot, and she was collecting flowers to do some healing. And so Lynn got we got talking with her, and she said, "You know, um, what? I'm, this, her whole trunk was full." And so she's a healer, and she works with her community. And so we invited her in, and we said, "Well, Michael's got cancer. You know, could we talk with you for a little while?" And of course, the first thing she asked is, well, do you have any tobacco? Because this is the way that you share when you're kind of with the indigenous the kind right. of culture to kind of create the safety. So as the conversation is going, I'm describing this to her. And I say to her, I said, I've been working so hard at this. Like I've spent all my life, I've been so fortunate. I've thought so much about my mind and I really try to be positive and strong and i feel like i've really mastered a lot of that and she looked me straight in the eyes and she says yes and that's the problem <laughs> you need to get it in your heart right this is not an intellectual experience and it was like oh my gosh it felt like a slap in the face but there is something really important about that which is that Nobody is going to be me. How do we get folks to bring out the best of themselves and start to help them shift their, their negative self-talk and maybe things that either they've told themselves or they've been told? We already know how to be great. We just have to do what we know. And that is a really important thing. And anybody can do that, Randy. You turn your life around, millions of people turn their lives around yeah. in spite of what they're up against. So I'm going to give you a pen and I want you to write down three things. You don't have to do it right now. We're just having a conversation, but uh, I want you to write down three things. And these three things are going to be given to the world. Right. And it's the three things that, you know, your time here on Earth and everything that you've learned uh, is going to be shared with every child on Earth. What are those three things you would tell them? No pressure. <laughs> I would say that you need to follow the natural laws. You know, there's a law of the harvest like you can't 
plant in the fall and expect to have a crop. Like there's a very natural evolution of things that we need to be in touch with. And nature is a foundational part of that. To be able to get into an energy space where there's no distraction and you really can be grounded and look around and appreciate that, you know, the trees that have no leaves are going to rebirth again. And so certainly for one, it would be that. Two is that it's really not about us. It's about other people. I met a waitress recently who we've come to love and she had a tattoo right here. And I said, Brie, what, what's that say? And she says, it says Sonder, S-O-N-D-E-R. And I said, Brie, what does that mean? And she says, it means that each passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own. Wow. And I thought to myself, I walked the streets of, you know, I was in Toronto doing medical stuff. I'm walking around and I'm just looking at people through such a different lens. The more we want for ourselves, the more we help other people get more of what they want. And lo and behold, it comes back. Yeah. And the last thing I would say, Randy, is decide what it is that you want. Like I, Lynn and I, in the early days, we would sit down and we wrote down, okay, we're, you know, we're married. We have two kids. What do we want to have? And we made a long list. We wrote it pen to paper. And I still have that list. And every single thing, with the exception of maybe one or two, have come true. I've got a concept that have, has come to me that has changed, attracted Lynn to my life, frankly, something called writing to your angels. I don't want to get all woozy do some crazy stuff has happened, but it's the idea of sitting down, dear angels, help me attract this into my life. Write it with positive intent, write it with love, be as specific as possible. What you want in relationships, professionally, financially, physically, emotionally. And then you sign it with love and you fold it up and you put it away. Now, the only tip is you can't write what you don't want. If you say, I don't want to be in a relationship that's toxic. The universe hears, I want a relationship that's toxic. You've got to <laughs> write you it go. from yeah, the perspective exactly. of, yep. right. and Randy, it is incredible what the power is of what we think about, we bring about. And it's not today or tomorrow or the next day. And so believe me, I have a part of one of my letters to my angels is, about living to the ripe old age of my desire of 91. And so time will tell, but I could give you at least seven people that have gone through this silly little exercise, pen to paper, not on a computer, that have come back to me and said, oh my gosh, you won't believe it. Ask and ye shall receive. You know, it's, it, it, it's, Gosh, we could go on for days with, you know, your story and, and and all of this. But it one of the things that just really struck me is, so it was 2006 was your diagnosis? Yes. Yeah. So uh, when did you buy the farm? 2001. Okay. So, folks, if you saw their farm and what they've done, they took an old farmhouse, um, you know, the, 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 the ruins of an old barn, 
uh, put a pool in it, built a, a, an incredible tree house that it just has to be, you know, seen to believe, renovated a barn that is, you know, the most amazing meeting space and, and all of these things. So what really struck me um, was, and you probably have heard the story, there's the girl uh, Songbird who was on America's Got Talent. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? Uh, just just an incredible like, talent, you know, and, and she had terminal cancer. Uh, and that line that she said uh, when they said, you know, are, are you okay? And she said, no. And she said, but you don't have to wait for things to be okay to be happy. And it it, it really strikes me. Uh, and here's here's a big lesson I'm hoping people will take with this is with everything you have been through, I know what you guys continue to do. You know, the property, the travel, the kids, the weddings, the you're constantly, you know, growing and evolving, still dealing with your diagnosis. So, you know, we not that someone has to have something of that weight, but I think that, you know, struggle can paralyze us and it didn't, it didn't, you guys. Well, thank you for, you know, the, the the property stuff. I mean, you know, we've been blessed and it's, it's at the end of the day, it's about home, whether you've got what, you know, the style of what we have or what you have. I mean, it's really about, can you create that environment that when you're there, you just feel safe and you feel happy and you feel content. You know, the real learnings, I guess, when I look through the rear view mirror, they did the, the victories are amazing, but the lows and, and the losses and the challenging hard times are where the lessons tend to be for me. And so it's kind of a choice. It's like, well, what am I going to do? What are my alternatives? Am I going to be have a pity party for myself? I mean, I've been there. I, I got to a spot, Randy, when the central, you know, when the disease moved into my central nervous system in 16, and I went for high dose chemo. I was scheduled for brain surgery to put a catheter in my brain. Uh, on the following Tuesday, I couldn't get out of bed. And I said, stop, stop everything. I'm going quality of life. It's, it's over. I'm okay with that. Yeah. And I walked from it. And lo and behold, things changed and I happened to get stronger. So you just never know what's around the corner, good or bad. And to me, it's like, how is it so difficult to be kind and to try to make a difference for other people on the daily, our children, our friends, our strangers? And yet, it's, it's, there's so many people, like we get into this, this zone of we're angry, we're mad. We tie these knots all up in ourselves, which just makes it worse. I'm a huge follower of neuroscience. Andrew Huberman blows my mind. This guy is brilliant. Yeah. And all of those things are happening, you know, way deeper than we can comprehend. And they're so important to pay attention to. So, you know, if you're listening, please try to really find ways to pay attention to what's important and slow yourselves down and take some deep breaths and let this crap go that's outside of your control. And you can still experience life and, and love and happiness and, you know, joy and tears and, and all of it when you're going through something, 
right? It's that's I, th- I think I'm hearing that from you, and it's just it's yeah. such an important thing that I I hope people get. You can't wait for it to be perfect. You can't. Uh, Nightbird was a real. I watch still her stories today. She was an inspiration for millions of people. She touched my heart from the get go. Um, and yeah, her attitude and her outlook was incredible. And so we can take, you know, this is again, one of the, the beautiful things. What are we, what are you exposing yourself to in terms of, you know, internet information, knowledge, are you looking for uplifting things? Are you following the news that's taking you down? Like Lynn doesn't follow the news. She'll just say, Hey, if something major happens, somebody will tell me. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I'm with you. I, I think that there's so much more potential that we have and, You know, it really comes down to choice. It's awareness of what's possible and choices that we make along the way. And there isn't really much more basic, um, you know, behavioral science than that. So I'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll chat and tell me whatever it is that uh, you want to put on this, uh, you know, this, this video and this page when it's done, as far as, uh, you know, the work that you've done, we can survive. Um, I also uh, selfishly want the world to b- have so much better style. So we'll include Lynn's website. Um, Michael's wife, Lynn, is truly one of the most amazing designers. Uh, and you, you've got to follow her stuff. I mean, it just, uh, just as an aside, I mean, this, is, this, this show is about, you know, helping to elevate people. So if you can, you know, you can actually design something, which I can't. Um, she's, <laughs> she's, uh, she's one of those people that can, uh, that can do it. Well, the thing I would say, Randy, is, you know, Lynn is an incredible designer. Um, and her blog is called Design the Life You Want to Live. So it's way more than the look and feel of her room. Yeah. It's about creating this feeling. And what's been magical is that our daughter, Tristan, has joined forces with Lynn over the last number of years. And they've got a, a very large following on Instagram, Knowlton and Co. And people compliment them all the time because they love the feed. It's just about life. I'm a grandfather now. And so we get to show just what it really is to, you know, that, that how we live and, and, and we try to really make a difference for every person on every front. And when I say we, it's them. I'm the guy that's in the background. I really don't do a whole lot other than, you know, cook some meals and take care of my, my, my fam. Uh, but it really is remarkable and most remarkable is the in, engagement. You know, that what I've learned is that social media, you, you can form deep bonds and relationships. It's not just all this surface crap that yeah. needs to be going on. Yeah. Well, thank you for calling that out. Uh, I'm very blessed. W- one thing I always like to do at the end of these interviews, because, you know, in sitting and listening to all this and, you know, I... I want more than anything, the the people that come on this show to be inspired to say, wow, I could be him, right? I could, I could take that trip for six months around the world. I could go into this career. I could walk across coals. I could, you know, um, fight and, and, and win this battle against cancer for all these years, all those things. So in order to make you human, (laughs) we have to finish on this note and say, Michael, what is it that you people probably don't know, but you just suck at what is it? Well, I mean, I'd probably say my golf game, uh, you know, high on the list. Um, 
Gosh, you know, it's a it's a tough question. I guess I I'm not sure I have a, a real good answer for it because I think that frankly, life is not about where you're weak. It's where you're strong. And I think it's much more important to pay attention to the strengths that you have than the weaknesses because they take care of everything along the way. And so I just say to people, what's your best quality and do more of that. And, you know, listen, life is not perfect. I am not perfect. People don't want to be me. We got to be the best selves for ourselves. And we can aspire and take inspiration and you know, courage and maybe a step that we otherwise wouldn't have taken because we've, we've heard an idea, a thought, we've read a book, we've watched a video. I think people already know how to be great. They just need to do more of what they know they need to do. And that will go a very, very long way to happiness, fulfillment, success, uh, and please, let's just remember, there is no road that is smooth. They all have bumps and valleys. I come down to me foundationally, resilience and your ability to work with what you've got. This has been just fascinating. I, I know that, you know, this is going to touch people everyone takes something different from you know experiences that we have but there's you know we've covered so much and you've just been so you know terribly honest uh, about everything shared a lot of amazing knowledge you know so many thought starters that i hope people you know will go away and again like i said off the top of the show you know take what you learn from from this and and, and go and do something with it rather than you know, have that jacuzzi experience for uh, for a moment. So again, uh, my friend, I can't uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, for this time. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you back on. Give our best to uh, to to Lynn, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so so very much, Randy, and all the very best to you and to all of the folks who've joined in here today. Cheers. Cheers. Wow, what uh, what an amazing interview, uh, and to you for joining us today. Uh, thank you so much. We'll post the information uh, here on the page uh, about Michael and give you a chance to uh, to search him and Lynn and, uh, and learn more. Until next time, for everyone here at Elevate, thank you. Have an amazing day and be well.